Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We have spent a lot of time on this program talking about the woeful state that retail is in. Right now, we have a defender, someone who can explain uh, what's going on, put it into perspective, and uh, argue that perhaps markets have gotten a little over their skis with their hatred of the retail sector. Rick Helfenbein, thank you so much for joining us. Rick Helfenbein is President and Chief Executive Officer of American Apparel and Footwear Association, which is based in Washington, D.C., and is a cheerleader for these beaten-up retailers that are seeing so much pain. So let's just start broadly, Rick. Why do you think that traders have perhaps gotten a little ahead of themselves with selling some of these uh, shares and, and bonds of retailers? Well, that, that's pretty easy to answer. You know, no. Oh, good. When you hear there's a hurricane warning in Florida, nobody wants to fly down there. You know, it's, you don't want to fly into an apocalypse. And people have been talking down on retail for months now. And for a whole host of reasons. You know, you go back to 2008, the first sign of coming out of a recession is a boost in retail sales. And when you see that, which we did in 2009, 2010, retail stocks start flying up because people have a little money in their pocket. They go buy some new clothes. And that's that's just the way it works. So now we're, we're in the mature part of the cycle. And the mature part of the cycle is look, look at the numbers. Consumer confidence, 16-year high. Gasoline, these are things we look at, $2.40 a gallon. Uh, unemployment, 4.6%. The GDP at 2.6%. These are all indicators that people are buying. Remember, two-thirds of our economy is based on consumer spending. On consumer spending, but that includes consumer spending on services as well as goods. And there has been a pretty big shift towards services and experiences rather than buying a, a new outfit, right? I mean, this has been one big driver of some of the pest around retail. That's true. But then you also look at the amount of goods coming into the country and you say, you know, because we can read these import numbers, we can look at domestic manufacturing, look at the amount of apparel and footwear that's coming into the country. There really hasn't been a slowdown. People are buying product. The question is, the new shopper, how's the new shopper buying? And that's what's affecting brick-and-mortar retail sales. So let's talk about brick-and-mortar because embedded in a lot of the results that we have been seeing and some of the pessimism is this very uncomfortable period where brick-and-mortar has to spend a lot of money to adapt to the online world, to distribution services, to online networks, um, while also dealing with lower margins on those sales and higher competition from people who can see marketplaces that are more comprehensive. This is what people are worried about. What do you say to them? Well, the worry is real, but the reality is nobody's walking around naked. I mean, <laughs> real- I don't know where you live, but where <laughs> I live, no, I'm kidding. Realistically speaking, today, you have to look at who's your customer. You know, that's the big thing. Who's buying the goods? And the millennial customer day age 18 to 34, 90% of them will compare shop or plan with their phones. Now, 60% will still go on a store to buy. So that's part of what's driving the price pressure down because there is price comparison. So 
the market is changing and retailers are adapting. And, you know, I, I know there was a lot of noise this morning about Foot Locker. You know, maybe they just didn't like what's in the Foot Locker store, but Foot Locker's going to do just fine. Well, but in fairness, we have seen a pretty broad-based disappointment when it comes to athletic wear, both what you wear when you go work out, as well as what you wear when you want to look like you're working out, even if you're not. Um, so, you know, this is something that is raising concerns that are we seeing the death of athleisure, as one analyst put it, or, you know, what's going on here? Is this a sea change in the way people shop at an entire industry? Uh, you know, are you saying that you don't expect uh, as many brick and mortar retailers to go out of business as uh, are currently well, kind of talking about you, it. You, you get into the numbers. We've had 18 bankruptcies so far this year, and that would be in half the year, whereas 2008, we had 18 for the whole year. So clearly, there's a lot of people going out of business. We have too many stores. That's quite obvious. We have too many malls. We had 1,500 malls at the peak. We have about 1,100 malls today. We may have 8,600 doors closing this year, but we have too many square foot per person in the United States and with this seismic shift to the internet adjustment. So you said we have 1,100 malls in the U.S. Where do you think that number will be five years from now? I think 1,000. I think we have about another 1,000 malls to go to pare down to probably where we should be. We're over-malled, we're overstored, and you have this rise of the internet. However, keep in mind one thing about the rise of the internet. It's only 8.5% of all the sales. So people are still shopping brick and mortar. That's why I believe the market has clearly oversold in the last week. You know, look at look at people going into the stores. Look at Nordstrom, up. Look at Target, up. Look at Walmart, up. Look at Gap, up. So let's not focus on the bad news. Let's assume that all these retailers are going into a period of adjustment and they will come out of it just fine. Nobody's walking around naked. Rick Helfenbein, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly a pleasure to hear uh, what you have to say. Rick Helfenbein is president and chief executive officer at American Apparel and Footwear Association, which is based in Washington, D.C. Another uh, share that we are watching today is that of Infosys. That's the uh, IT company and outsourcing provider uh, whose shares fell as much as 13% today, wiping $3.5 billion from the company's market value. This came, of course, after its uh, chief executive officer, Vishal Sika, resigned, even though many had really heralded him as the uh, driver of a lot of the company's uh, gains over the past few years. Here to discuss what the road is ahead is Anurag Rana. He's our senior analyst of software and IT services for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios now. Anurag, uh, can you just give us a sense of why the CEO resigned and why it's being perceived so negatively by the market? Yeah, this uh, company has a very interesting history. Um, prior to Vishal taking over as the CEO, uh, all the you know older CEOs were founding members of the company, and uh, you know there was a lot of pressure that the the last couple of CEOs didn't do the job as well as uh, you know other publicly traded companies. So they brought in a new guy that didn't was not uh, a founder uh, from SAP. He did a good job. He's done a, a lot of interesting things in the company since he came over. Uh, employee attrition has dropped. 
sales has improved. Uh, the overall perception of Infosys has also improved in the industry. And then, but, you know, one of the founding members has always been um, nudging and bothering the board about, uh, you know, co constantly interfering with the way he's been running it. So he just got sick of it and said, I'm quitting. So why did one of the founders do that? If he's doing such a good job, if he's created so much market it's value... It seems a lot like some cultural differences between the two. Now, remember, this is a $40 billion company or around $40 billion company without the drop. And, you know, a lot of the complaints were, well, why are you paying someone so much? Why are you taking charter jets? How why much are you... were they paying him? Not, not him. I mean, they had paid, uh, you know, the CFO a little bit uh, higher than what the, the founder thought was appropriate. And it, it was basically constant interference from these founders as to how uh, the business should be run that uh, made it, uh, you know, you know, made him said that, you know, enough is enough. Well, let's talk a little bit about the business of Infosys, right? Because uh, right now it is a promising time for a lot of the services that they provide, but they're trying to transfer over to more web uh, services and provide software uh, solutions, perhaps is a little bit away from their original wheelhouse, right? Can you give us a sense of what the big challenges are? So if you look at this industry, it's been dominated by, you know, these three or four major companies, Tata Consulting Services, Infosys, Cognizant, Wipro, um, and all of them do similar kind of products and services. But the bulk of their revenue comes from a lot of legacy IT work, uh, application maintenance and software development. And the industry is moving more towards artificial intelligence, software-oriented tools. And, you know, this guy at Infosys, his background is he came from SAP. So he has done a lot of new changes um, ever since he came as the CEO, which is where the, the space has to go. Um, so if the place is kind of commoditized and you had, don't have a good leadership, just as in this case, in, you know, in Infosys, it might give chance for others to take share away from the company, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you see the stocks dropping quite a bit. I see. So in other words, the co-founder is looking at this company the way he created it, which was provide, providing outsourcing services, helping with your, comp with your company's uh, computer system from afar, uh, which is also sort of challenged right now, given the uh, HB1 visas and the emphasis on not outsourcing as much, at least in the U.S., right? Well, publicly, they have said that they don't, uh, you know find any fault with his strategy and execution. They are more quite concerned about some of the corporate governance issues. And now, I mean, the company has had an investigation to see, you know, there were any some whistleblower allegations about a particular acquisition. And they went through this whole round of, uh, um, you know, going through an investigation and they didn't find anything. It is those kinds of issues the founders are more um, you know, problematic or issue uh, have issues with rather than the running of the company. What about this idea of this emphasis on a more nationalistic approach to business and how this could affect Infosys? It, you know, they have said that they'll be hiring a lot more people in the U.S. And uh, I mean, that's just part and parcel of what they do. Um, in fact, if you do have to do emerging technologies for your clients, you do need more people on site, which is, you know, which is what all of these companies are doing at this point. Um, but the bigger issue in, in this particular case is who can come now? I mean, I mean, you really cannot have a non-founder as the CEO of a company at this point because whoever comes will face the same exact scrutiny from the founders. They're going to start looking at every move this person makes, who they hire, what kind of pay goes in. So it's going to be very difficult for them to find a CEO at this point. Have the founders said anything? 
Yeah, they're still complaining. I mean, I just saw that there is a <laughs> there is another letter that they have uh, sent out blasting the board. And I mean, they might have to, you know, either either the you know, in, in in my view, either the founders will have to sit down and decide, either they come and run it the way they want it, and they completely rechange the board and the management team and everything, or they get rid of their uh, you know the the twelve thirteen percent stake that they have. And then let the let the other shareholders run this company. This is really interesting to me because there's a lot of money at stake. As you said, a forty billion dollar company, and clearly, uh, the market has retraced some of the losses from earlier. Now the shares are only down, only down a little more than eight percent. But uh, you know, you raise a lot of very important issues just about the path forward at a time uh, when this is a very competitive space, when they do have to make a lot of investments and a lot of decisions sooner than later, uh, and they now are facing a leader void and a very aggressive co-founder. Fascinating story. Anurag Rana, Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services here at Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us in our 1130 studios. Right now, I am so pleased to be speaking with Mike Buchanan, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Western Asset Management. It oversees $433 billion and is based in Pasadena, California. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. I want to focus a little bit on what we've been hearing from a growing number of big asset management firms, which is we are getting concerned about the overvaluation of U.S. high-yield bonds, and we are reducing allocations to this debt. Where do you stand on this? Uh, well, first of all, Lisa, thanks for uh, having me on. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's something that um, we we hear a lot um, from our clients, from consultants, uh, concern that when you look at the corporate credit markets, and it's not just high-yield, but investment grade as well, uh, you just look at spreads, you look at yields, Valuations overall uh, seem, you know, somewhat compressed, and our view is that um, it's not necessarily indicative of a market that's that's overbought or certainly not in bubble territory. I think you have to put it in context. You have to think about what is the fundamental backdrop that's supporting these valuations, and it's very important to to marry those two. And when we look at that, what we see are fundamentals that we think are still very strong. Uh, the most part, moving in the right direction. Um, and I think, you know, valuations, uh, certainly not table pounding. We're finding opportunities in, in high yield. We're finding opportunities in investment grade. But to be fair, back to your question, uh, we have been reducing uh, our, our allocations just on opportunity. We're finding some other areas where we think uh, you have better risk-adjusted returns, so skewing our multi-sector portfolios in that direction. Like where? Where are you seeing better opportunities? Uh, well, I think uh, local emerging market uh, currency debt is probably our, our highest conviction idea right now. Um, and, you know, it's, it, you think about a, a world that is uh, where, where yield's scarce, um, you certainly can get a lot of yield in uh, emerging market local currency debt. Um, and I think there's a lot of macro forces that are that are behind you and should result in some tightening uh, of these spreads or these yields relative to developed market. Um, you're starting to see growth now for the first time in, in, in really three years. You know, Russia and Brazil, as an example, positive growth there after two consecutive years of contraction. Uh, some of the uh, inflationary pr uh, pressures in those economies uh, and, and, and even broader emerging markets seem to be 
subsiding. It's going to give their central banks a little more flexibility on policy. And, uh, you know, I think you're also seeing a, a little more of a bias towards policy discipline and reform. Uh, so we really like taking advantage of, of a lot of those opportunities, and that's where, you know, as we reduce some of these credit positions that I mentioned earlier, that's where a lot of that uh, money is going. In correspondences before uh, this segment, you also noted that with spec- in a sector-specific uh, wager, you're looking at investment-grade credit in the financial, metals, and mining, and energy sectors, as well as rising star opportunities in high yield. Are there specific names that you're targeting within that rising star category uh, that you really believe in strongly? Yeah, I think that's a, a real interesting trade in high yield right now. Um, you know, people don't look at the the, the shift in composition uh, in terms of ratings in the market um, as much as we think they should right now. And you're definitely seeing less triple C issuance. You're seeing more double B issuance. The double B market uh, within high yield is now the largest portion uh, in terms of rating uh, category within the high yield market. And we think there's an inordinate number of those double Bs that we think have a reasonable chance to make it to investment grade within the next year to year and a half. Any specific and, names? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're you know, kind of broad-based, but I can throw out, you know, like Haynes Brands is a, a good example, uh, Park Aerospace, uh, even in some of the, you know, sectors that seem like they're uh, uh, somewhat stressed. You mentioned metals and mining, Freeport McMoran there. On the energy side, uh, Williams, a pipeline company, uh, there is really, I think the, the bigger message is there's just a very large number of these that our research teams identified, and we think you'll get uh, not only a, you know, a decent amount of income just from coupon clip there, but you'll also get some uh, total return from spread compression as they make that jump from double B to triple B. Uh, let's talk Tesla. You didn't buy those bonds, did you? Well, we did not participate in that deal, and you know, sir, it wasn't because it's not a great company, but um, it's really as a fixed income manager. Uh, you know, we saw some things there that just didn't uh, really uh, compel us to, to 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 participate in that deal. Didn't think it offered a lot of relative value, and we thought there were some risks there. But you did go for Amazon. Amazon just sold the sixteen billion dollar yeah. bond offering. Did you even buy the forty uh, year bonds? We did. We we bought Amazon um, uh, across um, most maturities, uh, and you know it's interesting, Lisa. You, you look at those two deals on the surface; they look somewhat similar. Um, you know, they're obviously two great companies with tremendous management teams, very proactive vision, and, and, and great leadership. The difference being free cash flow generation. Tesla, you know, kind of a different part of its its life cycle, still burning cash. Uh, no free cash flow generation. It's going to take at least three years uh, to get there, and you certainly have execution risk. And, you know, a little over 5% yield. We thought there were better uh, opportunities uh, in the high-yield market. But you go over to Amazon. Uh, Amazon, you know, really a, a pristine balance sheet. They are generating uh, a lot of free cash flow, over $10 billion, uh, per annum by our estimates. Uh, great liquidity profile, over $20 billion. Uh, of cash and liquid securities on the balance sheet, um, AAA balance sheet, even though the ratings are, are somewhat odd at BAA1, AA minus, we probably you know, think it's closer to a high single A, you know, double A type company. So, um, yeah, we, we really liked the Amazon deal, thought it was priced right and took advantage of that. Uh, and Mike, just to 
give you some kudos. The the bonds are trading up in uh, the days after trading. So it seems like others agree with you. I want to ask you about cash holdings because there have been a series of articles talking about a reduced uh, amount of dry powder or cash in investment grade and high yield bond funds. And I'm wondering where you stand on that and whether you've been also eating into your uh, cash piles in order to take advantage of some of these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, our, we we manage our cash in accordance with what we see as opportunity in the market. And you know, right now, like I said, it's it's not a table pounder in either investment grade or high yield. So we're operating with uh, you know a little bit more cash than maybe we traditionally have um, to to take advantage of you know maybe pullbacks or, or some new issue opportunities. Um, but I think the the also I mean just kind of speaking beyond Western asset management and maybe perhaps looking at some of our competitors, you've had a tremendous amount of investment grade new issuance uh, recently. You know, it's not just the Amazon deal. You've had uh, some very high profile, you know, the uh, AT and T issue and uh, BAT. You know, these are big big issues. So um, a lot of that cash has probably been deployed. Got probably it. speaks to the leaner cash positions. Mike Buchanan, always a pleasure. I love speaking with you. Mike Buchanan is Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Western Asset Management, which has $433 billion under management and is based in Pasadena, California. Always uh, fascinating to hear what looks good and what doesn't for that behemoth money manager. Right now, I am trying to wrap my head around what it means to be a responsible investor and uh, to get a better sense of it from somebody who knows best because he helped found the whole movement is John Stroyer, Chief Executive Officer of Calvert Research and Management, which was acquired by Eaton Vance earlier this year uh, and is based in Bethesda, Maryland. John, I was uh, reading some notes earlier and uh, evidently... Calvert helped found this concept, this uh, United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, that now counts 1,700 large investors and more than $70 trillion in assets. What does this mean? Great. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. And your question, what does it mean to be a responsible investor, is a very important one to answer. First and foremost, what it means to be a responsible investor is to get the right amount of return for the risk you're taking. So performance is a big part of what we think about day in and day out. The second big part of our process is understanding how companies are impacting the environment and how companies are impacting society. But again, it's critical that we find the companies that are able to do a great job for people and planet and do it in a way that works for financially motivated investors. So is your job to essentially come up with a framework of what's responsible to give to some of these investors and say, here, if you want to sleep well at night, if you want to feel like you're doing the right thing with respect to human rights, with respect to global warming, with respect to whatever it is that you uh, think is super important, here's a basket of stuff to buy. You bet. And the question really is, what matters to which companies? In other words, a company that's in the utility sector We need to really focus on their greenhouse gas emissions, their percentage of power generated from renewable sources, what they're doing vis-a-vis fossil fuels. Those are very, very important considerations. A company in the tech sector, it's a different set of issues. We want to understand their ability to create well-being for a diverse workforce. There are issues around internet privacy and security. So you said it right. We want to give clients the answers in terms of 
here are the companies that are really making a positive difference, but it means different things to different companies. And that's where our big research platform and uh, industry-leading team of analysts really come into play, figuring that all out. Can you give some perspective on how much this sector has grown over the past few years, just in terms of numbers? Well, as you said, Calvert was one of the founding signatories of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing in 2006. At that time, there were 13 of us representing just a few billion, a few hundred billion dollars in assets. Today, 1,700 large investors have signed on, $70 trillion um, in, in assets under management worldwide. What, what does that mean, $70 trillion in assets? Does that mean as far as companies that are adhering to these principles, this is their total AUM? Asset owners. Okay. So, so large pension funds and other investment management firms who have said, this matters. We think it matters to understand how a company is impacting people in the planet in our investment process. But let's talk about it from a financial advisor and a client's perspective. What do we know there? Today, there's a, still a pretty big gap between the investors who have put their hands up and said, hey, I'm interested in responsible investing versus the financial advisors who are comfortable with their level of expertise in talking about it. About 73% of investors in Eaton Vance's most recent Atomics survey have said that they're really interested in responsible investing, but only about 23% of financial advisors have said, this is a meaningful part of my business. So we know that advisors are catching up, they're developing expertise, they're learning about products and ways to serve these clients, but still, one of the most interesting parts about this movement is it's investor-led. That's interesting. Uh, and, and just real quick, uh, you noted uh, before the segment that President Trump has actually given some steam to this movement. Can you just uh, encapsulate that in 30 seconds? Sure. I think we're all looking to companies to solve some of our most pressing social and environmental challenges today, more so than we're looking to the federal government. Um, I could leave it at that, but I'd also observe over the past couple of days, a lot of CEOs have stepped up and said, we're going to disassociate ourselves with these business councils that the president put put together. And this is part of it. These are These are companies saying, we're going to continue to press forward. We're going to work hard to solve the challenges that the population of the United States needs to have solved, environmental challenges, equality challenges, social challenges. And uh, we're, we're going to do it sort of on our own. So I think that the Trump administration has made it clear that companies, more so today relative to government, are responsible for our environmental and social outcomes. Thank you very much. John Stroyer, Chief Executive Officer of Calvert Research and Management, owned by Eaton Vance uh, and based in Bethesda, Maryland. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.